All right, folks, we are going to get started. Um, and before we do, though, I want to make sure we give a big thank you to Alan McCannon and Billy Dudley for cooking the hamburgers and the hot dogs. That was... <laughs> and Billy for the grill, yes, thank that you. That grill is something else. That is amazing. <laughs> so but we, are, we are thankful uh, for you guys doing that. Um, they were delicious. And um, so we are going to get started. We are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to finish the chapter this week. Um, it's an ambitious goal, uh, but I think, I think we'll be able to get there, hopefully. Uh, we're about where we need to be. Uh, but 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 11 here in just a sec. Remember, 2 Timothy is kind of like Paul's last will and testament. He knows he is going to, to be put to death very soon uh, because he continues to preach the gospel. And... Um, Rome is tired of him preaching the gospel, and so he knows his time is short, and so he's writing this letter to his son in the faith, a young, his young ministry protege, Timothy, who is serving in the church in Ephesus. And uh, Paul, again, last will and testament, this is the last letter he's going to have a chance to write, and so he is packing it in in terms of instructions, encouragement, warnings for Timothy, and also for the whole church there in Ephesus. So we're going to begin reading in verse 11, and I say we just go ahead and read to the end of the chapter, verse 26. Um, I'll start reading there, and then um, Mark, if you'll pray after we read, and then we can jump in. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself." Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You pray. Yes, let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this book of the Bible and for the ability to take a few weeks to walk through it uh, verse by verse, uh, because we believe, as this book teaches, that your whole word, all of it, is inspired uh, by God, that it is useful for teaching, reproof, and correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, competent for every good work. 
And I pray that even now you would be at work in all of our hearts and lives, uh, refining what needs to be refined and encouraging us where we need to be encouraged and spurring us on in this lifelong walk uh, with the Lord Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, verse 11 through 13. Uh, This has been one we've had a a good bit of discussion on. Um, it it, It seems at least on the surface that it's pretty straightforward and simple. But as you'll see, when we get to verse 13, there's actually um, a good bit of room for, shall we say, disagreement, room for interpretation in terms of how we we take that. Um, But he starts in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. Um, And one of the things that's important to, to note there, it's not like other parts of 2 Timothy aren't trustworthy. Instead, what Paul is doing is he's taking from sayings that are out there, and he's saying this particular saying is a trustworthy saying. Um, so again, he's again not saying part of what he's saying you can trust, other part not. Um, and this is the saying. Let's read it again in verse, starting in verse 11. He says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Um, so the first two Uh, Actually, the first three of these are the easiest, I think, in order to really interpret and look at. So first one he says, this is part of the saying, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. So when Paul says we've died with him, he's referring to by faith, we are united to Christ. He talks about this in Romans and other places. We have died with Christ, not physically died with him, but his death is credited as our death when we believe in him. Uh, Hopefully that's not too dense of a concept. Like sometimes, at least for me, um, I try to find, I want to make sure these things make sense. But if we've died with him by faith, we will also live with him. So his death is credited to us when we believe in him. And then we have the actual real hope of physical resurrection where we will be in his presence forever one day. So we'll experience eternal life with Christ if we've died with him by faith. The next one, any comments? Stopping along the way, guys, if you want to say something. Um, if we endure... We will also reign with him. Now, this is getting to something a little different. Not just trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior, uh, you know, to be right with God and eternal life. This gets to something about the nature of faith itself. Um, Lots of places in the Bible talk about this. In Revelation, it's a very big theme that comes up for God's people that uh, faith endures trials. Faith endures the difficulties of this world. Meaning, you keep trusting in Jesus no matter what. You keep trusting in Jesus even when times are hard, even when things don't go your way, you hold on to Christ. You're trusting him. And so that's why I think Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And that's the promise that we have as the people of God, that one day we will be seated with Christ and we will reign with him in glory. But the way we get to that is by enduring in faith here on earth. Yeah, I'm uh, just real quick on that. I mean, even on the, on the first part there, on verse 11, Paul's about to have his head cut, and then he's thinking about life, sort of living with Christ again. That's a powerful thing. But in terms of enduring, uh, just think of ordinary faithfulness. I, I want to be faithful. I want to stand fast. That, that idea. And I think the older or the longer I've been a Christian, the more I see that as attractive. Uh, just ordinary faithfulness. I just want to endure. I uh, just want to pursue like the, the ordinary disciplines, like the means of grace. And j- that just seems like you talked about the guy that Jerry talked about who was like in his 70s or something like that, and he pointed to him, he said, that guy's just steady. I mean, for me, that's just, that's the model we should look for. People are just steady in the discipline, steady in the word, just wanting to endure to the end. And more and more, that's kind of what 
uh, we should all be wanting to just be faithful to the Lord to the end and clinging to the word like you're saying. I think we might also want to say that's why it's good in a church to have such a, a variety of different ages and where people are. Like, um, you know, folks who have walked with Christ for a very long time, years and, and even decades, Papa Fred, maybe centuries, um, we love you, man. Um, but folks who have walked with Christ for an extended period of time, for those of us who might not have done it as long, we need to see their endurance. I mean, um, one of the things I've always been thankful is in our discussion group, whenever, whenever the topic goes, whenever the discussion goes to this about, you know, endurance and going through trials, you know, Bruce and Lori Webster, they always have a lot to share about, you know, we've seen God prove his faithfulness. And guess what? Through trials and difficulties, their faith is stronger than it was before. And it's like, as a church, we need to see that, um, as, you know, younger folks in the faith, folks who haven't lived as long, we need to see that, yeah, you can endure. And so it's not just knowing that we should, but God provides us with examples of people who are enduring. And man, I'm thankful for that. I, I need to see folks who were beyond where I'm at still following Jesus, still loving Jesus, still desiring the word of God, still desiring to, to worship and to pray and to serve the Lord and to grow. Um, and so this endurance thing, yes, it's, it's personal in terms of we must endure, but it's also a community effort in the sense that we encourage one another to endure. Yeah. If you want to just a cross-reference, hold your spot, go a few books to the right to Hebrews chapter 3. Should be a familiar passage if you've been around here for a while, but it is so important on this note that Greg is mentioning and Scott as well. Hebrews 3, uh, if, you, if you remember, Hebrews is all about endurance in the Christian faith, not turning back, not turning away, not leaving or forsaking the gospel. So, uh, I know you're not turning to this chapter, but in chapter 2, he talks about um, paying much closer attention to what we've heard in the gospel lest we drift away from it. So, there's this fear of drifting, not enduring. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, let me start back at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, uh, quoting Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to, to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then the author concludes this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but, how does that not happen, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, do you see the community aspect in endurance? Left to myself, my faith goes from a flame to a little flicker down to almost nothing, and eventually it would just kind of burn out left to myself. But having others around me who spur me on, and maybe there's times I can spur them on, that, that mutual encouragement and exhortation is essential to the body of Christ. It's essential to it. And, and that's why I'm so encouraged just, just seeing you here tonight, wanting to be encouraged by the Word, wanting to talk to one another, meet with each other, fellowship with each other. These are really good signs that, that, of endurance, the desire to persevere and to, to grow strong uh, in our faith. You can turn back to 2 Timothy. The flip side of all this, so the encouragement part here is, if we have died with Him, 2 Timothy 2.11, if we've died with Christ, we will also live with Him. 
If we endure, we endure to the end, we will also reign with Him. If we, here's the flip side, if we deny Him, He also will deny us. And you don't have to turn here, but Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, the Apostle Peter would be the first to tell you that he denied Jesus, but he did repent of that. He did not lock himself into permanent renunciation of Christ. Had he done that, he would have proven himself to be Judas, not a Christian. But but he did not do that. Peter, in a horrific moment of denial, repents and and gets back on his feet. So this is not saying if you've ever had a moment where you've slipped up and and you did not, you know, claim Christ or you did not, you were not bold in a moment where you should have been at work or at school or wherever with a family member, doesn't mean if you've made a one-time mistake that you're, that that you're going to be denied by Christ. That is not, that is not true. But if there is a persistent hardening of my heart to Christ, a, a persistent distraction from spiritual things, a persistent love of the world over Jesus, a persistent neglect of the body of Christ over friends who don't share the values of the Bible, and on and on. What does that do in a year? What does that do in a decade? Where are you 15, 20 years down the road? Uh, I don't think you're anywhere close to Jesus 15 years down the road of that. So, if we ultimately turn from the Lord and drift away indefinitely, then as we deny Him with our life, He Himself will also uh, deny us as well, which is a sobering warning, but because it is true, it is loving and good that we are told this so that it does not catch us by surprise. No one in this room will be able to say, you didn't tell me that if I turned from you and denied you that you would one day deny me. Uh, no, No one in this room can claim that. So when we stand before the Lord on judgment day, if I have ultimately turned from Him, God forbid, if I've turned from Him and lived another kind of lifestyle and I go face Him, He can remind me of this very moment in this room where we actually read this verse out loud and He said, listen, did you not hear in my word that if you denied me, I would deny you. And so he says, I'm going to be true to my word. I will do that very thing that I promised to do. So this is an act of love of the Lord that he would tell us this ahead of time so that we would not make that mistake. I think Spurgeon, I heard Spurgeon say recently, or he didn't say it recently. It was 150 years ago when he said it. I read recently when Spurgeon said, uh, the Spurgeon Study Bible, I just got that. Alistair Begg edited his notes. And and in that, uh, Spurgeon said, you know, when you have a a, a precarious uh, cliff near where people are walking, you warn them, and you warn them repeatedly that if you step off this, you will die. You will fall. You will die. There's no way to, to recover you. And he said, why do people give that life-threatening warning? Why do they do that? So that no one does step off, right? And, and he says, you, you, you might have some kind of chemical that would kill you, some kind of poison that, that's nearby that you have to have nearby. And you say, listen, that's poisonous. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Don't get near that. Uh, that will destroy you. That will kill you. And he says, what does that warning do? It keeps anyone from ever touching that stuff. And so these warnings should keep us from ever doing the thing that's warned about. If, if the Lord will deny you for denying Him, then the last thing in the world I should ever want to do is deny the Lord Jesus. This is a loving warning put right in front of us to say there is a better way, there is a better avenue, there's a better course to take, which is to claim Christ as your own, to love the Lord, to be bold about the Lord, to be publicly known that you're a Christian, to not let it go for six months or six years at work where no one really knows that you even are a believer. Uh, that we, 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 we uh, as Spurgeon also said, we raise our flag early and often, and we let people know where we stand in a loving way so that we could claim Christ, not to be saved, but as evidence that we do truly know Him. Fantastic. Now getting into the tricky part. Greg, can you start Uh, us off here? I will do my best. Verse 13, uh, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Uh, There's at least three different ways to take this. If I botch this, Mark, help me out. Um, Kevin DeYoung, y'all have heard of him. We've passed some of his books out. Uh, He has a, a way of thinking about this. He says, 
Um, the faithless refers to us, obviously the faithful it refers to God, and he goes to Romans chapter 3 for as a parallel passage. Uh, we can look at that real quick. We don't want to spend um, all our time on that. And it is in Romans chapter 3, verse 3. Again, there's a lot more we could say contextually on this. But Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? Same referring, Greek word. Same Greek words referring to the Jews. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And then Paul says, by no means. And so in that context, it's basically saying, even though the Jews were unfaithful to God, does not mean we should question God's faithfulness. De Young comes with that in mind, comes to verse 13 and says, probably the same way of thinking that even if those who claim Christ are, are faithless without faith, it doesn't challenge the faithfulness of God. That's a legitimate way. Um, another one. Help me with the second one. I get, I get mixed up yeah, on this This, this other one is very similar. So if, the big debate is this. What does that word faithless mean in verse 13? Does it refer to someone who denies Jesus like the phrase right before it? So in other words, are these last two parts, the end of 12 and 13, are they parallel to each other? Are they saying the same thing in different words or are they not parallel? If they're parallel, then to deny Jesus at the end of 12, is the same as to be faithless or to be without faith. And then God or the Lord denying us would be similar to him being faithful to himself at the end of verse 13. So he's going to be faithful to his own promises. That, that's one way to take it. And then the other direction would be… Um, I think this is the one Piper argued for is um, basically the Bible is God-centered. And so the main emphasis in this is God's faithfulness to himself. You know, God is who he is. He will never deny who he is. He will never be inconsistent with himself. And so, you know, even if people don't have faith, God is still faithful. And, you know, the emphasis here, Piper would say, is not faithful to his people who might be without faith for a season. Piper would say faithful to himself first and foremost. God will never deny himself. Um, and there's the another option, the one I, I have typically just kind of by reflex um, interpreted this is, you know, a lot of times we, we are at points in, the, in our, our Christian walk where our faith is, is flickering at best, if not almost out completely. Um, and in those moments when, when we, you know, we, we know the truth of the Bible, but we just don't have anything in us, it feels like latching on to that about who God is. Um, you know, in those moments, what's my hope? My anchor is not my faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Um, and I, I wish I could tell you I had an absolute certainty on this. I lean towards my, my original position, but the other ones that we looked at have, there's legitimate, um, a legitimate possibility that they're correct, uh, Piper or DeYoung, uh, with what they argued. So I think the one thing we can rest on, whatever, whatever Paul means by faithless here, um, I think we can rest on the fact that God is faithful. And he will be faithful to his people. Um, you can always count on that. If you belong to him, he is faithful. Um, and if you take it in terms of us being united to Christ through faith, then when Jesus sees you, he also sees himself and he won't ever deny himself in you. He won't do that. Um, so he is faithful. And the reason why he is faithful to us is because he is faithful to himself. Um, God will never contradict himself. He will never go back on his word. He will never change. We can trust him implicitly, explicitly, all the time and forever. 
Um, any thoughts to add to that? Because this was like, we went back and forth talking about this, like what, which one fits best with the evidence. And, you know, guys, sometimes when we study scripture, um, you know, we might not always leave with the most certainty and that's okay. Like, uh, it's okay to be like, you know, it, it seems like it could be this, but there's good evidence for this. And in this issue, like the fact that God is faithful is clear. What does Paul mean by faithless? Not a hundred percent sure because there's some good arguments either way. Um, but this does not touch on anything major in terms yeah. of our walk with God. Whatever Paul is talking about by faithless, um, either the, any of the positions harmonize well with the rest of scripture because why? God is faithful and he won't deny himself. And if you belong to him, you know he won't deny you or be faithless to you. Any yeah. other thoughts? And just on that point, Whichever way you go, now the text does have a meaning. So it yes. can't mean all three of those things at the same time. It means one of those, not all three of those. But at the end of the day, uh, the, no ultimate doctrine is at stake because both sides say things that are ultimately true in the wider canon of Scripture. So on one side, faltering Christians who are genuine Christians are still going to be loved and God is still going to be faithful to them to save them. That's true. On the other side, if faithless means I renounce my faith, then clearly the rest of the verse tells you that the Lord will not save us in that case. So I, both sides are stating something canonically yeah. true, what, whatever the, that text for sure means. Yeah. All right, let's move into our, our, our primary text for tonight. And uh, you've got kind of three parts here. You've got the, uh, the worker. You've got good, good and bad examples of the worker in verses 14 through 19. And then you have this illustration of the honorable and dishonorable vessel in verses 20 and 21. And then you have the Lord's servant in verses 22 to 26. And so we're going to kind of break down these three parts here. And uh, Scott, can you read for us again this, this 14 to 19? Okay. <clears throat> Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And just at the beginning of 14, where he says, remind them of these things, some people would say it's, it's what Paul has just said. Some people, maybe the whole chapter too, but Alistair Begg took the view that he thinks that's the, really the whole letter uh, and he said, Beck said this, he said, remind them of the essential truths that make up this final letter, the essential truths of the faith, the gospel itself, remind them of these essentials. And I love he said in verse eight, remember Jesus Christ, which he said in verse eight, risen from the dead. And it's just uh, how important theological memory is. I mean, memory is a gift from God and how important theological memory is for us all to remember Jesus, but then to remember the essentials, uh, to remember the gospel. And uh, one, one thing I love about Jerry Bridges, which I've mentioned him many times, but I mentioned this on Monday, his book, The Discipline of Grace. In that book, I think almost every single chapter, at least one time in every single chapter, he brings in the gospel. He, he does it over and over and over because he knows that we are prone to forget the gospel. We need to remember the gospel. And I thought even in settings like this, we need to remind each other because we're, we're prone to forget the gospel. I, I thought of Gage Patton that time. He w wasn't doing well spiritually. He called Grant Crane up and he just said, Grant, tell me the gospel. Like remind me of the gospel because we're prone to forget the gospel. And when we remember the gospel, uh, Beg would say that it, we're reminded of the mercy of God. And there's something just about thinking about the mercy of God. I think of 1 Peter 1, 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Just thinking about that, who causes us to be born again to a living hope. Just thinking about God's great mercy, it stirs inside uh, gratitude, which ultimately will lead to worship and ultimately lead to glad obedience. So we just need to remember sort of the essentials, and we're just so prone to forget the essentials, we need to be reminding each other of the essentials of the faith. And the opposite of being reminded of the, the truths of the gospel would be what is happening here with these false teachers. So let's just read a couple of these parts again. Verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. That's pretty serious there. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. And then 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their, their talk will spread like gangrene. So you have here people who have, you've got solid doctrine is one option, but the other option is sort of, Paul will talk about endless speculations, uh, debates about genealogies, uh, he'll talk about um, all irreverent babble, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, all these phrases in First and Second Timothy and Titus. W what's going on here? Well, we don't, we don't necessarily know all of what the false teachers are saying here. We do know, we're going to talk about something in just a second, but a lot of this is just distracting talk, uh, things that are not about the essentials of the gospel. They're not about doctrine in the Bible. They're really speculative. They're kind of like conspiracy, theological conspiracy theories. That's a, a good way to think about it, perhaps. Uh, where Imagine somebody just like spends three hours a day thinking about conspiracy theories, and then they spend the rest of the day talking to other people about conspiracy theories, and then they wake up in the morning and talk more about conspiracy theories, and they will listen to a three-hour podcast about conspiracy theories, and then they call somebody, talk on the phone for two hours about unhealthy unhealthy lifestyle, okay? Do not waste your life talking about things that are pure speculation, that have no grounding in biblical clarity and biblical truth. Don't go on and on and on about some inference of an inference of an inference that maybe is halfway, partially, maybe true, and then get into a fight with your friend about it on the phone. That's exactly what you should not be doing. That will spread like a cancer through the church, where everyone's going to get off the focus, off the main thing, off Bible, off doctrine, they're going to start speculating about things we can't actually know about because it's speculation, it's conspiracy, and suddenly you got people into a massive argument and there's fracturing and splitting over something that's based on some two and a half hour YouTube video that you shouldn't have been watching in the first place, and suddenly all this is going on. Well, that nonsense needs to be stopped. Paul says, stop that right now. That will split a church in half. It'll split all kinds of people in half. No, no, no. Be clear on the main things. What, what is the Bible clear about? You know, the, the main things are the plain things. Alistair Beck also says this all the time. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. That's what we should be talking about. And so, someone who says, listen, talking about the holiness of God is boring. I, I know He's holy. Talking about the character of God, oh, I've read, the, I've read Knowing God. I kind of know about that. Oh, talking about the basic doctrines about God's sovereignty or about salvation or justification, oh, I know all that. That's all boring. I heard that when I was a kid. Instead, let's get into this really remote aspect of something that no one really can understand, and let's debate that until everyone's mad at each other. Not helpful. Not healthy. It is a sign of health that we want to talk about the main things in the Bible. It's a sign of lack of health when you go into a random genealogy in First Chronicles 4 and you spend the next four weeks dissecting who was given birth to who for the next… I mean, it's just the main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. And a sign of health is you focus on what's primary in Scripture primarily. It doesn't mean you ignore things that are of secondary importance. You also study those as well. But the, the, we need to have a proportion that is in proportion to Scripture. The, the gospel should be central. The character of Christ and the Holy Spirit and God should be central. Those things should be central. Prayer, evangelism, missions, sharing our faith, those things should be central in what we're talking about. We should be excited about those things. And things that are of lesser importance or less prominence in the Bible should should still be discussed, and it is worthy of our time to study them. But we need to make sure that we 
we, we weigh things proportionally in order with what the Bible has uh, in terms of uh, levels of importance. Well, this is the very same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. And you know, the Corinthian church was absolutely messed up. They were confused. They were arguing about a whole host of things. They had a lot of things that were wrong. And in chapter 15, verse 3, what does Paul say to them? And he's dealing with a lot of stuff. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance, meaning there's things of second importance, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so what Paul is doing is bringing the Corinthians back, bringing you know, us back if we find ourselves off course in saying, look, yes, there are things that matter. But Christ crucified and resurrected for our sins, that matters most. We have to keep that at the center. And that goes back to Jerry Bridges preaching the gospel. It's when we start remembering the gospel, what is the gospel? It's the good news message of God showing favor to sinful rebels who deserve nothing but judgment. And he does that on a daily basis. Every breath we take, every beat of our heart, God is showing us grace. But even more, if we see in Christ that what we deserve for our sin is what Christ took in our place, then that is is what fuels us. That is what sustains us because we never move beyond that. We never graduate from the gospel, if you will, um, into like something more important. No, the gospel is what saves us. The gospel is what sustains us. The gospel is what sanctifies us. The gospel is what gives us our hope to keep on going because if Christ, as Paul said, has died for us and bore our sins, then how's he not also going to do everything else that we need? And so that's like the, the, the importance of this is it's easy to get sidetracked and to get into a rut that's completely not, it's not going to help you make progress with God. It's not going to help you grow in your faith. It's simply going to get you distracted and bogged down um, to where you actually end up making no progress at all, or you actually start regressing and going backwards. Yeah, just one other thing on that is I was thinking about there's a practical thing on this where uh, the false teachers, and it's really, I was thinking about the power of words. I was just reminded about the power of words. They're spreading these, uh, this false teaching, but it's the words that they're saying, it's leading to, to ungodly living, and it's leading, it's like gangrene, it's like cancer spreading through the midst. Well, it started with words. It's the power of words to sort of send people in the wrong direction into, into sin, so I was just reminded of the power of words like Ephesians 4 about uh, that it may give grace to those who are here. Our words have such power that they can give grace, but then our words can tear down and send people into sin. And there was one commentator just said this question, like every time that we gather maybe for a Bible study or fellowship, he said, this was a great question to ask. He said, has this time moved us closer to God and elevated our conversation and our conduct? Just, I thought it was a great practical question just to think about, did that really edify? Or was that just, were we wasting our time talking about the conspiracy theories? Just something to think about when, when we have a fellowship time with other Christians. And before we get to the positive part of this section, look, look again at 17. It says, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. You might wonder, you know, how could you think the resurrection has already happened? Uh, you know, that, that, so... Probably something along these lines of they have done kind of like what Plato would do, which is separating the physical and the spiritual. The physical is bad, the spiritual is good. And so probably something like this is what they're thinking. This is kind of an educated guess. They're saying something like, well, when you believed in Jesus, you were spiritually raised to new life, right? You were dead in sin. God made you alive. That's the resurrection. That's it. There is no further resurrection. So when you were born again, you were resurrected spiritually with Christ. You were raised into the heavenly places. There is no future for your body. Uh, th th just there isn't going to be. There isn't going to be a future bodily resurrection. And you say, that's kind of strange that someone would say that. Well, 
did, first, did the Corinthians struggle with this issue? 1 Corinthians 15, some say that, that there is no future resurrection. And Paul says, okay, let's do the logic on that. If we don't get bodily raised and there is no future resurrection for us, then there wasn't a resurrection for Jesus either. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then your faith is in vain and our preaching is in vain, and the whole Christian message is a, in, entirely a lie. Is it, we of all people are most to be pitied, he says, if that is true. But he says, but Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this particular error was, was one of central significance, upsetting the gospel, saying there is no future bodily resurrection for us. And Paul will say, you're actually going to cause people to leave the faith entirely, because if you deny bodily resurrection, you lose the gospel because bodily resurrection is an essential component of the gospel message. He died, he was buried, and he was raised physically, bodily, literally, not just spiritually or metaphorically. He, he is raised bodily. And so, uh, they were upsetting the, the actual gospel faith of, of people in, in this church. And it's important too, verse 15, I think, gives us the, the way we need to go. Obviously, he's talking to Timothy first as uh, you know, his delegate there in the church, but also for, for pastors, for leaders, for anyone who teaches, says, we want to present ourselves to God as one approved. That means you've come through a, a time of testing and you've proven your worth, your, your strength in that. A worker who has no need to be ashamed doing what? rightly or correctly handling the word of truth. It literally refers to cutting something straight, like cutting um, either wood or cutting like plowing in a field. You're cutting a straight path um, so that, that it's easy to see where you're going. It's easy to know the direction you're supposed to go in. Contrast that with verse 18 when it says some of these have swerved from the truth. They've deviated. They've gone off the path. Um, if we, what we need to do, and this is what we try to do as a church, what I, I hope we do every time we gather together, you know, either one-on-one -on -one for, for, you know, book club, um, discussion groups, family groups, whatever it is, we want to cut straight with the word of truth. We want to chart a clear, straight path with it. Um, and the, 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 the implication is that if we don't do that, people will swerve off the right path into error, even potentially soul-destroying error like Hymenaeus and Philetus did. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, as a church, like, yeah, we do systematic theology, uh, Sunday school, we want to deal with those things. But the primary diet of a church, I think, needs to be consecutive exposition. Because the only way we can really teach the word as it's supposed to be. Otherwise, we're substituting our opinions. We're, we're hitting our hobby horses with things w that we're moved by and we want to talk about. But when we let the text set the agenda and we just walk through the text and, and the text drives what we say, that's how we cut straight. That's how we chart a clear, straight path. And we don't swerve off into error. And just, just confirming that, I mean, one of the reasons why most Sundays we just go to the next verse of whatever book we're in and we just go straight through a book of the Bible. I know some of us have probably been raised with that. Some of us maybe have not been raised with that. So it may be a little unusual if you come here and you're like, wait, we've been in Acts for a long time. We're just going verse by verse through 28 chapters. It's going to take forever. Um, so if you wonder why we do it that way, well, first of all, I mean, I, I did grow up with, with my dad who faithfully, my dad, was, my dad would do a verse by verse through a New Testament book, then an Old Testament book. New Testament, Old Testament, just incredible uh, discipline to do that. Uh, I'm I'm not quite there with the Old Testament. I'm working on it. <laughs> but, but one of the disciplines that makes this so good, so, so good for a church is at the end of the day, it should start feeling like God is in control of the pulpit, not some guy. 
Because if, if I'm picking the text every week, then I can just avoid stuff that makes me uncomfortable, and I can just pick the stuff I really like to talk about. And over time, it starts sounding a lot more like me than like the Bible. Uh, and so, if I'm forced to say whatever the next sentence of the Bible says, there are weeks I'm uncomfortable. I'm like, wow, this kind of challenges me. I feel like a hypocrite. I don't do this well, whatever the next text is. So, now I've got to get up and talk about this, and I don't do it very well. It is in, it, it's in my face as much as anybody's face, because it's God just talking. It's the next thing God says. And God's not going to be edited. It's just whatever is next we say. And so it's a challenge to me and to you guys who preach too. It's a challenge to us just to kind of have the Scripture dictate what's going to be said. And then our job is just to try to be faithful to whatever the text says. That should be what is said from the pulpit. And whatever the main point of the text is should, should be the sense of the main point of the sermon. And where the text is pushing us should be where the sermon on Sunday is pushing us. And we should be submissive to God's Word, not, not trying to sort of pick a few things and build our own version of theology that sort of suits our, our pers- personal preferences or something like that. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple other things on that. Alistair Begg had this sort of weighty quote. It's really for those who teach the Word, but he said, we are not here for the approval of men. I don't want to be unliked. I like being liked as much as anybody, but I've got an appointment with God to give an answer for every word spoken from this pulpit and also for whether I actually watch my li- own life and doctrine closely. And that scares me so much that I could never be scared by any one of you or even a hundred of you together. That's just the weightiness of, of teaching the Word of God. And it's, many people said word work is hard work. And anybody who studied the Bible at any length of time, you know it is not easy. We're just talking about verse 13, like three different views, and you're beating your head against it. It's not easy. Uh, I told this story to some people on Sunday, but uh, I worked for an IT company. This was a couple years ago. I was sitting at my desk. Two guys, technicians behind me, were talking, and all of a sudden, they, they said this Bible verse. I couldn't believe it. I think it was in an email that they got from a client. They said this verse. I don't remember what verse it was. And then one tech said to the other tech, he said, yeah, but what does that verse mean? And I remember just thinking in my head, I said, welcome to my world. Like, this is not easy. They couldn't figure out one verse. So word work is, is hard work. And I, you, you mentioned dad, and I, I just, just growing up in, in his home and seeing how much time he, he spent, I, I knew I wasn't going to make it <laughs> on this, uh, just so faithful to, to prep uh, on the word, I just remember him like on Saturdays, he's out in the yard and I can hear him just work, sharpening that sermon. I mean, it is, it takes so much time to, to come to the word. It's no, it, it's not that it's not joyful. It is extremely joyful to study the word, but it is not easy word, which it, it just, I'm thinking for everybody in terms of studying the word, it reminds me of verse seven. I just want to read verse seven of chapter two. It says, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. We so we think, 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 and we pray, pray, pray over the text. But it, this should really be for all of us. We want to study the Word in depth. And uh, I think it was John Stott said, some people never get down to any serious Bible study. And I would just push us all to, to, to we want to study the Word. It's, gonna, it's not easy, but it is joyful. There's so many resources out there available to us that, that we should all want to be digging in and, and studying the Word. Can I say one more quick thing on that, just to take that home even more if I can? Um, nobody in here likes digging um, in their yard. Like if you have to dig for dig holes for a fence, like my yard, we've got rocks everywhere. It is hard. Like it takes forever. You dent your shovels, you bend them. They don't work anymore because of all the rocks. But if I were to tell you that there were millions of dollars worth of diamonds buried in your backyard, I think you would put up with all the digging it took in order to get that wealth. How much more wealth do we have? The uh, Proverbs psalmist you know, the, the law of your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. When we value scripture, the, the work is hard, but we say, you know what, the same way, I'm going to put in 12-hour days, I'm going to sweat a lot, I'm going to be tired, I'm going to be sore, I'm going to hurt, but there's wealth in my yard, and I'm going to get it even more so with the word, mm. even more so. All right, uh, picking up here at verse 19 of Second Timothy 2, 
But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Just, this seems to be a reference more than anything else of the, of the story of Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. It, it, Numbers 16 verse 5 in the Greek translation is virtually the identical to the Lord knows those who are His. I think that's exactly what Paul's quoting here. And then even departing from iniquity also seems to come from verse 26 of Numbers 16. So, Remember the, you may remember the story uh, where Korah and two other men rebel against Moses and Aaron's leadership, and they say that they're leading them the wrong way. They come outside. The Lord asks basically for, I don't know what to call it, a showdown, basically. They come, they come out with their families, and it's, it's pretty intense. They got their children and their little ones, and they come out to the, the door of their tent, and, and Moses says, okay, today the Lord will determine who is, who's, who's telling the truth here. And he says, listen, if you guys live a normal life and you die a normal death, then I am in the wrong. But if the, the, the ground opens up and swallows you whole, then everyone will know that I am the Lord's chosen. And in that moment is that famous scene, that, that terrifying scene where the ground opens and uh, Korah and the families uh, fall down into Sheol alive, right? They fall down into the grave alive and the earth closes back over them. And there's this, this great fear of the Lord before them for the rebellion. Well, similarly here, those who are swerving away from what is true and renouncing what is true, if they do that indefinitely, the Lord, listen, the Lord knows those who are genuine and those who are not. And at the end of the day, the Lord will sort things out. Um, for the sake of time, yeah. can I keep moving? Go uh, we're going to move to the next part here of the, the vessels of, of um, the good and uh, the honorable and dishonorable vessels. Verses 20 and 21. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Greg, you want to start us? Off? Yeah, I'll, I'll go. Um, okay, verse 21 kind of brings it, um, and brings it to us in terms of our responsibility. Again, he says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Uh, when we think about um, sanctification, we think about being set apart more and more to God, being more like Christ, being more godly um, in our attitudes, godly in our, our perspective on the world and all of that, and being used by God to make a difference in the lives of others, that's, it's not as though that happens apart from our effort. Um, and this is something like we, 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 we have to be careful here because it's not like God's work is dependent on our effort. It's not. But at the same time, God has set things up in such a way that it's through our seeking him that we become more like him. God doesn't just snap his fingers and all of a sudden we're as Christ-like as we need to be. He takes us through a long process that involves our willing, our daily choosing Christ and preferring Christ over other things. That's why like in Philippians, you know, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so when Paul is saying here, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, uh, he will be a vessel for honorable use. In one sense, we have to understand that if we want to be used by God, we have to pursue God. We have to pursue a life that is turning away from from a life pursuing what the world pursues, the pleasures of the world, the rewards of the world, you know, temporary successes, temporary satisfactions, things that don't last. And we've got to start pursuing Christ and investing in the things that last, that matter, that endure 
for eternity. And that is our responsibility to do that. It's, it's a daily thing. Part of the way we do that is as best as we can daily being in the word, daily being in prayer, and daily just setting a, a mindset that says, you know what? As I go throughout this day, I'm going to do my best to live for Christ as I know, as best I can see in his word. And I'm going to turn away from the things that displease him. If we do that, we will be useful to God. Like that's the promise here. God, it's, it's not like God's like kind of hanging it over us. Well, you better do this or else. It's like, no, if you pursue me, if you turn away from, from the world, I've got something amazing for you. I'm going to use you. You are useful to me. I mean, that's, a, that's you know, we, we look forward to the well done, good and faithful servant at the end. But in, in here, we've got God saying through this, listen, you are useful to me. You are useful to me as you turn away from sin and pursue Christ. Robert Murray McShane, who was a pastor who died at, I think, age 29. But Robert Murray McShane, uh, he, he said this quote to pastors, but let me adapt it to everybody. He said, um, basically, and his original quote is, an all, is, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of the Lord. And by awful, he means something positive there. Uh, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of the Lord. And then he said, your people, you, you, the people that you're leading, need more from, they need from you more than anything else, your personal holiness. So let's adapt that to all of us in the room. So the people in your life need from you your personal holiness more than they need anything else from you. That's number one. If I, if I can offer them other things, but I can't give them holiness, a real life devoted to the Lord, if I cannot give that to my family and my friends, then what good is it? But, but starting off, the best thing you can give to your roommates, to your spouse, to your kids, the best thing you can give to your coworkers, the best thing you can give to your classmates, the best thing is your personal holiness, your walk with the Lord, your commitment to Jesus spilling over in love and humility and joy and truth. That's the best gift you can give to someone else. And I would just say, we, are, we can become an awful weapon in the hands of the Lord for good if our life is devoted to Him. If, our, if it's genuine holiness that is motivating us, then the Lord can use us in great and tremendous ways. But the, the things get clouded when, when sin begins to come in and, and t take over in our life. Yeah. I'll just say at the very end of, of 21, I love this, this line there. It says, ready for every good work. I mean, it's just a great line. And Greg, what you're saying, it's like th this incredible privilege that we have to be used by God. But if we would all be ready for every good work, I mean, how great would that be? One, one commentator said, prepare for every good work. This should be the desire of every Christian to be set apart exclusively for God's purposes, to be useful for God's service, and to be ready for whatever good work God wants them to do. And it reminded me of Jerry Bridges. Again, I'm quoting him, but he would say that he, he used to pray, Ephesians 5, about husbands love your wives. As Christ loved the church, I've mentioned this at some of the weddings I've done, where we're never going to arrive there. No husband is going to do that perfectly. So he would pray every day, help me to love my wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And then he said one day, I think after praying that, he came downstairs and something was undone that uh, he thought his wife was going to do. And there it was. I don't remember what task it was. And he said he had things to do, but here's this task. And then he realized, you know, God is giving this, him this opportunity to do this good work for his wife, out of love for his wife. And so then he ended up doing the task. So I'm just thinking, husbands, uh, there's going to be all kinds of good works for us to do, and we should be ready for every good work uh, to, to model Ephesians 5 to our wives. And just for all of us, though, there should be, there's opportunities for us to do every good work, and it should just be something that we want to do, uh, going out at pursuing the disciplines, and it should, we should just be wanting to honor God and do every good work that God provides, like Ephesians 2. He's prepared these good works that we would walk in them. That's fantastic. And I, I wish we had half an hour for this last paragraph, uh, but uh, we, we don't. So uh, this last paragraph is just tremendous. Uh, this is such, such a life-impacting uh, section. Verse 22, so we want to be honorable vessels, so 
flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I'll just say, uh, I've heard some people say uh, not that long ago online that, you know, what matters is the truth, and Christians who focus much on tone are missing the point. And I want to say that's, that's not true. Um, tone matters to God <laughs> because this text is all about truth and tone. Let me say it again. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. That's about a demeanor, a posture, but kind to everyone. That involves the tone of voice, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. That's about your demeanor, your tone, how you're interacting, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Gentleness is nothing but tone. That's what gen gentleness is about, tone. It's truth and tone together. And so people who mock tone, I want to say, no, 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 no. Let's slow down. Let's, let's, let me fix my own tone as I talk about this. I'm about to get angry myself about it. I'll lose my own tone. When you read this text, the point here is kind, patient, and gentle. Kind, patient, and gentle. Say it again. Kind, patient, and gentle. And you've got here truth. You're speaking the truth. You're correcting your opponents with gentleness. You're correcting. So quarrelsomeness is not the same as correcting your opponents. That's very important. A quarrelsome person is unfit here. But someone who lovingly corrects with truth and gentleness, that's not a quarrelsome person. Now, someone might get mad about that, but that's not quarrelsome. Quarrelsome is someone who finds pleasure in the fight itself. They, they're not happy until they're theologically fighting with someone by 8 o'clock in the morning, okay? That's unhealthy, okay? That's not okay. Um, but we're talking about someone who doesn't love the fight, but is willing to correct with gentleness with the truth. And so, thoughts about that? Um, I'll say a couple of things. Um, one, uh, th this basically means, if you want to think in terms of opposites, being snarky is not okay. It's just not okay. Which Christian Twitter is full it of It is snark. nothing but digital snark. Yes. Um, and it's, it's atrocious, the vast majority it's just, it's of the It's one-upmanship back and forth. It is. Dunking on you, dunking on me, going back yeah, and forth. It's, 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 it's nothing but a, a onla an online quarrel, basically. Um, nobody really listens to each other. It's who can get the best zinger in um, and then kind of boast and crow about how well they destroyed their opponents. And that's the stuff uh, that gets the most retweets and does. attractions. And, that's, and we need to guard our hearts that that's not what we're drawn to. It's very hard. I'm not saying it's easy. Um, for some of us, this might actually mean if we think about not being quarrelsome, take a break from social media. Take a break. Um, it is so easy to get sucked into uh, just the vitriol and the animosity and the antagonism that is just dripping and saturating our culture today. And that's the exact opposite of what we are supposed to be. So no snark and be very careful with sarcasm. Sarcasm can be done well, but it's not easy and often it misfires. So be careful with that as well. I have to be very careful with that personally. My dad is a very sarcastic person. I can tend to be a very sarcastic person. Um, and I have to watch what I say um, because you, I will say things and sometimes you might look at me like I have 
a horn and, and, and something out of the horn growing out of my head. And you're just like, where did that come from? And it's, I have good moments. I have not good moments um, when it comes to, to doing that. It flows effortlessly with me. My wife has, has graciously pushed me to, to be more careful um, in that area. And I'm very thankful for that because we don't always realize um, what we think. Man, look how funny I was. You could have just really been a jerk. And we don't want to be a jerk um, unnecessarily um, or at all. Uh, so don't be quarrelsome. Don't be snarky. Be very careful with sarcasm um, because again, what's the goal? What's the goal? The goal is to win people back to the truth because we're dealing with false teachers here, people who have swerved, but they're not beyond hope because look again at uh, verse 25. We correct opponents with gentleness. Why? Because God might grant repentance. It means he might use our our seeking to be kind, patient, and gentle with the truth, not backing down from the truth. He might use that to bring them back. Because if it's folks like uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they have departed from the faith, at least in terms of what they're they're believing and what they're, they're preaching. And even they are not beyond being brought back. They're not beyond restoration and repentance. And that's why Paul says, be very careful how you deal. Don't don't get dragged down into a, a pointless argument. Don't play on their terms. If they are angry, if they are antagonistic, don't be that way back, no matter how much you might want to just let them have it. Why? Because don't play by their terms. Be kind, be patient, be gentle, and correct with the truth. And guess what? Those people who were snarling at you by God's grace, may come back broken and repentant, asking your forgiveness and asking you to help them walk better with Jesus. That's good. Yeah, I know we're almost out of time, but I got I to mention at least verse 22 real quick. I love verse 22. Let me just read it again. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I love this idea of we're fleeing away from sin and we're pursuing righteousness or we're, we're fleeing sin and pursuing holiness and it reminds me of the movie The Fugitive, which some of you may have seen with Harrison Ford. 1993, he was wrongly accused of killing his wife, and all these circumstances happen. There's a, tra- there's a, there's a wreck with the, with the bus they were on, and he gets, he gets out, and he flees uh, from U.S. Marshals. It's Tommy Lee Jones. He's, he's great in that role. Like He is just going to do everything to, to capture uh, Harrison Ford. But Harrison Ford is going to great lengths to get away from him. Well, Tommy Lee Jones is sin. And Harrison Ford is, is us fleeing away from sin. This is how it should be. And the, there, there's a scene where they're on, they're on this dam, and Harrison Ford is running through these tunnels. He gets to the end of the tunnel, and there's, this, there's basically a waterfall over the dam there. And Tommy Lee Jones captures him. Essentially, he's got him pinned there, and you think he's going to be captured. But no, Harrison Ford turns, and he just leaps off. And, and Tommy Lee Jones, where he, he did a Peter Pan right off of this dam. right? He, he does a flip off. He lands in the water. He goes downstream, and he gets up, and he just keeps running away. I just, it's such a good picture of how we should be with sin is dangerous to the soul. And we got to flee. In fact, we don't negotiate with it. Now, it's Joseph with Potiphar's wife. We've got to run away from it as fast as we can. The other thing I would say is that uh, John Piper is so helpful on this. I mean, sin, when we give into sin, the reason why we do is because we give into the pleasure that it offers. Sin is on the, it's offered, uh, baited on the, uh, by ple- the pleasure of sin is baited on the hook of sin. 
and we give into it because we want the pleasure that sin gives. It's sort of like this, we've got this piece of gossip and we just want to share it. Why are we going to share it? Because we want the pleasure we get from sharing that piece of gossip. We, we bite into to the, to the, the, the bait there of pleasure. And then as soon as we do, what happens? It's, it's that feeling of remorse, that, that sticky feeling where we bit into the hook, like Satan has tricked us. So we say, there's so much more joy in pursuing holiness. That's the big thing to, to, to fight against sin. We got to see sin. Yes, it's harmful, but oh, it's going to steal our joy. It's going to rob me of joy. So we want, we want to pr- pursue holiness. But the end of 22, I love this, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, the idea of community. We're pursuing holiness together in a community. I just wrote this down. Uh, well, one from a commentator, he said, uh, instead, holiness should be pursued in community along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And I just thought, for those of us who've been at this church for at least a year, I thought, you know, where would we be in our pursuit of holiness without the people of God that he's placed in this church? I mean, we would not be anywhere near where we, where we are now, but we're surrounded by people who love Jesus and who push us on and just so thankful for this church and people who've, who've pushed me on to holiness. That is fantastic. We're out of time, but I'm going to steal just like two minutes, Okay. Maybe three. Just hang with me because I, I got to make this point before we're done. I would hurt myself if I didn't talk about this. So real quick, th- this is great. So in the last week's text and the end of t- this week's text are kind of like these bookends that, that make this one point. Let's go back real quick to chapter 2, verse 10. And this is, again, how the doctrine of election or sovereignty of God interplays with our work for, for evangelism. And they're, they're both right in this text twice. 2.10, Paul says, as he's in jail, well, let's start in 9, I'm suffering in verse 9, bound with chains as a criminal, but the Word of God is not bound. Therefore, since the Word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything, all this suffering, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. How many people say, if God elects people for salvation, then we shouldn't do passionate evangelism? And what's Paul doing? As he's waiting to die in prison for evangelism, he says, I'm doing all this so that through my means, God will save his elect. Evangelism and election are friends in this verse. Paul's dying for the elect. Then, look at the end of the chapter. All this stuff about, again, verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, and here's the sovereignty of God. God may Perhaps, he may or may not, it's up to him. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul says, listen, your responsibility is not negated by God's sovereignty. Your responsibility is not be quarrelsome, be kind, speak truth clearly, endure their evil patiently, and correct with gentleness. And the Lord, through your means, may grant salvation to those you are talking to. He may grant repentance. He may not. He's sovereign. He doesn't owe it to anyone. He doesn't give it to everyone. But He may, through your means, actually grant repentance to the person you're talking to. And at the end of the day, through our faithfulness under God's grace, He will save His elect. He will. And so there's this guarantee as Paul's about to die. He knows all my suffering is not in vain. Why? The Lord will save his people. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord will ultimately save his elect. And so we should be emboldened by that. That God's plan has got guaranteed success at the end of the day. And so we should be emboldened and enabled by that to, to love others well and to speak the truth clearly. Keep praying for us. Sure. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these nights where we can gather and, and have fellowship uh, with each other. We're, we're thankful for, for Alan and Billy for all the work that they put in for the food and uh, just so thankful for that. 
um, their service in that. And uh, thank you for your word that we can come and study and be challenged by. And uh, I'm sure we're, we're all being challenged by this. And I just am reminded of the beginning of 2 Timothy 2 again about you, then my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. I pray that we would, we would swim out into the sea of God's grace to be strengthened and to be motivated and, and to draw strength from, from Christ to, to, in order to uh, obey what's, what's in the, this passage. Uh, just thinking at the beginning of the older saints in our church, uh, as uh, Greg had mentioned, so thankful for them, Father. Uh, you know, Papa Fred, who, who is such an example, just hearing uh, Jerry mentioning Papa Fred recently about all that he's doing and discipleship in our church, just so thankful for him and, and the Hakamas and the Websters, uh, my parents, just so thankful for these older saints that we can glean from. I pray that we would be faithful to go to them and learn from them and be humble to even ask them questions. Guys like Jerry Edgar as well, uh, so thankful for them. And, and Father, we're, we're thankful for your word. It is, can be difficult to understand and uh, hard to understand at times, but Father, I pray that we would be faithful to, to, to think over your word and, and that we would pray over your word and, and help us to see that the word is, is a treasure. As Greg was saying, you know, it's, there's diamonds under the surface. So I, I pray that we all would be diligent to, to study your word and be faithful to study your word. Uh, we're thankful for the warnings in this passage that you uh, give out of your love for us in order to persevere us uh, to the end. And uh, just thank you again for this time. We're, we're so thankful for it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And next week for the food, is it Chick-fil-A? Ooh. Did y'all hear that? So we got Chick-fil-A next week, uh, Lord willing, and I uh, hope I'll see y'all back then.